and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly podcast from Capacity Media on all things digital infrastructure. I'm your host, editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have editor-at-large Alan Burkett-Gray, deputy editor Natalie Bannerman, and reporter Saf Malik. Later in this episode, we will also be talking to AT&T's Jerry Jarami, who was appointed the VP of Wholesale Solutions earlier this year. We caught up with Jerry earlier this week, and he talks about his new role, as well as fiber, satellites, and many other things. But before that, it's time for the news and a quick roundup of the headlines. This week, we have heard that the Ethiopian Communications Authority has published an RFP for a second full-service license in the country. New open architecture has been applied to the broadband network gateway courtesy of Vodafone, Benny Networks, Casa Systems, Cisco and Nokia. HyperOne has received registrations of interest from more than 500 businesses across Australia as it prepares to start building its all-Aussie backbone before the end of this year. Bulk Fibre Networks has completed construction on the Hafsal subsea cable and Telegeography has found that global internet bandwidth increased 29% in 2021 compared to 34% in 2020. Meanwhile, in the US, the FCC has said it will open its rip and replace scheme on the 29th of October and that will run it until the 14th of January next year. In South America, Brazilian regulator Anatel has confirmed the country will conduct its largest spectrum auction ever on the 4th of November, while America Mobile and Liberty Latin America are to merge their Chilean businesses. And NTT's Docomo has committed to become carbon neutral by 2030, and while it's at it, it's also going to launch a retail energy arm, which is a new trend for us here in the telecoms industry. Um, and in France, Utelsat has officially rejected a 3.2 billion US dollar takeover bid from Patrick Drahi. Finally, in data centers, platform Equinix has a new customer, i3d.net, which is a gaming server code that has a goal to connect 1 billion users by 2025. And Console Connect has integrated with the DC Connect platform in Hong Kong, offering business connectivity to data centers across mainland China. And also in China this week, Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou is back home after her 34-month house arrest ordeal in Canada. Um, but on to the bigger stories of the week now. And first up, it's been a subsea special once again, um, thanks to several announcements over the last few days. Um, but only one cable can be the longest in the world. So over to you, Natalie, first of all. Thanks, Melanie. Yeah, so um, to Africa, which is the huge consortium cable uh, that will surround the African continent, um, has once again been extended, but this time to the Arabian Gulf, Pakistan and India. Referred to as the Two Africa Pearls branch, the uh, cable extension will bring the total length of the Two Africa cable system to over 45,000 kilometres, making it, as you mentioned, the longest subsea cable system ever deployed. Uh, the previous record holder was actually the CME V3 system, which spans uh, 39,000 kilometres and connects 33 countries. Um, that particular system starts in Europe, um, goes across North Africa and the Middle East and all the way to Asia and um, the Oceania region. But back to Africa too, um, as a result of the extension, the cable now connects three continents, which is Africa, Europe and Asia, as well as the terrestrial link through Egypt. The new landing points include uh, Barka in Oman, uh, Abu Dhabi and Kalba in the UAE, Doha in Qatar, uh, Manama in Bahrain, uh, Kuwait, Al Four in Iraq, uh, Karachi in Pakistan, Mumbai in India, and a fourth landing in Al Kobar in Saudi Arabia. Now, the news marks the second extension of the system, with the first having been announced in August of this year, which uh, saw the cable expanded into the Canary Islands, the Seychelles, Comoros Islands, Angola and southeast Nigeria. 
Uh, in line with the rest of the system landings, uh, capacity will be available at the poles landing station points via carrier neutral facilities or open access cable landing stations on a fair and equitable basis. Uh, as previously confirmed, Alcatel submarine networks will build and deploy the new system using technology such as SDM, which will enable the deployment of up to 16 fiber pairs. The system is still on track to go live uh, in roughly 2023 and 2024. Um, I imagine those dates might be liable to uh, sorry might be likely to change um, as a result of all the various extensions but um, it's certainly a story that we will be following um, for a long time to come. Um, we've already been covering this project for quite a while I mean since it was announced last year um, and these four new branches that you've just explained are exactly as you said what pushed into the kind of record-breaking territory um, but remind us about the capacity that this cable will offer um, because it changed a little bit doesn't it at various points. Um, yeah, so my understanding is, um, I don't think that they've given an exact capacity of it, but we're talking somewhere in the high kind of uh, 100, maybe 150 terabytes per second. Um, I wouldn't expect anything less than that on a system that has 16 fiber pairs. But as you mentioned, because of the various branches, I think there's still going to be some further details in terms of, you know, whether the entire system will have the exact same capacity, will the entire cable have the exact same kind of fiber pair um, kind of uh, numbers, etc. So I think it's a bit of an unfolding kind of story with regards to the actual um, overall capacity of the system. We kind of get um, updates on on the kind of the the story as as and when kind of Facebook and the consortium decide to to let us know. But yeah, once we get a, a better picture, we'll definitely be sharing that with the audience. Excellent. Um, well, you mentioned Facebook there, um, and you know, the kind of step into the world of subsea and infrastructure um, has been quite a big development for the industry. Um, and this was a huge project even before it was extended with these new branches. Um, so do you think it could signal a new trend for intercontinental subsea deployments and, you know, getting those longer cables and those bigger projects deployed? Well, you know, in the case of CME V3, which is what I mentioned before, which, you know, was the previous record holder, they had something like, I think it was uh, 92 investors, and which is an insane if you think about it but they had something like um over 12 or 13 different carriers on that system alone um so you know by comparison to africa i think has something like eight or nine um different um companies in its consortium so in that respect i suppose it's not particularly new um i think it's very telling that a cable system that is quite significantly longer than CME V3, but has far fewer investors, um, is probably testament to you know the kind of the uh, the capital available for the like from the likes of you know Facebook and I suppose some of the other companies that are involved. Um, but certainly not a new trend. I think it's for a system of that size, it kind of makes sense that um, you know there are so many investors involved. Again, it's they've never really shared the details in terms of how much this is actually going to cost. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we were kind of nearing the billions just given the size of it um but yeah consor consortium cables you know the kind of inter intercontinental uh, cables and you know it's not anything new but certainly ones of this scale is is definitely um yeah one 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 in a million i suppose yeah, it's a really interesting project. Um, but on the topic of deployments, um, we're going to talk next about Cross Lake Fibre. Um, now, this cable was due to land on the 27th of September in Brighton, England. Um, and Alan took one for the team and he took the train and he went to Brighton. Um, but the great British weather had other plans. Um, however, the ship did set sail on Thursday, the 30th of September, which is the day we're recording this episode. And as far as we know, it's still sailing. So, Alan, over to you now. Tell us about Cross Lake Fibre and your day in Brighton.
Yes, well, it was a yes, it was a, a good day in Brighton. It was bright and sunny, but it was really windy. And the big problem was that the wind was along the shore uh, from the west, uh, which meant that if they had started laying the cable, apart from the fact that there were metre high waves and breaking waves, a lot of white water all over the place, it looked like a, uh, a real challenge for a kayaker. Um, but it was because it was going along the shore. If they'd started to lay the cable, it would have blown out into a long U shape, um, and they couldn't have kept it straight. And it's a the seabed round there, right across the channel, is full of litter, several thousand years of litter, uh, including minefields from World War Two and lots of wrecked ships, and an old pier that closed in went off the coast from Brighton, closed in 1975, and has just been rusting away ever since. So there's a lot of debris. So they wanted a real clear path. Um, and so they cancelled it. We all gathered in Brighton to watch the boat come ashore, but it didn't happen. Uh, it did, as you say, happen on Thursday morning, uh, landed at 9.03 UK time. Um, and is now the boat is making its way across the channel to France uh, and by the middle of October, so two weeks time, really, uh, it should be laid, um, connected into Cross Lake's existing infrastructure that they've already put uh, on land on both sides of the channel. Um, it will be a it's the fast first cross channel strictly cross-channel fibre uh, cable since 1999. And although there is one across the North Sea that Natalie wrote about a few weeks ago that EU Networks has um, that goes across from East Anglia in on the east side of Britain to the Netherlands. And there's another project that Zeo is building as well but that's not in service yet. That won't be in service until mid-2022. But this, so is this, this is the first one to be laid since Cirque, Cirque South in 1999. Um, the Channel Tunnel has sort of captured the market for the last 25 years because obviously it's a nice concrete tunnel with lots of protected routes for cables through it. And Colt a few weeks ago won the contract, 25-year concession for... Uh, continuing cable. It, it used to be Lumen. Uh, before that, it was, well, it, having bought Global Crossing and various other companies, it had inherited that. So it was uh, it was it was an interesting day. It's 96 pairs, uh, unrepeated. So uh, absolutely astonishing bit of technology. Uh, it's built like a terrestrial network because it goes across from Slough to the west of London to Paris or to the northwestern side of Paris. Uh, and this is just the longest link in that network. Um, they managed to get it. It's about 180 kilometres, I think, coast to coast. And that's about as much as they could stretch. So it's the longest bit in this whole network. Um, and there were lots of people there from lots of operators. Um, so it'd be fascinating to see. I think there's, even though the Channel Tunnel has got a lot of cable in it, uh, people are obviously looking for subsea cables as well for resilience and, uh, and and other reasons. It's going to connect an Equinix data centre in London or west of London and uh, Interaction and Equinix in Paris. So uh, runs data centre to data centre. Sadly, we didn't get to see the cable land. We didn't see. I've never in all the years I've been writing about this industry. I've never seen a cable land. But then neither has Natalie. And she's written a lot more about it than I have. Thank you, Melanie.
Fantastic. Thank you, Alan. Um, well, sorry it was a wasted trip for you, but you know, it was wasted at all. It wasn't wasted at all. There were some fascinating people, and it just made me realize what we've been missing the last 18 months to actually sit down in a room with lots of people who, you know, just sitting there having a lunch and a glass of wine will talk about all sorts of things that uh, I found really fascinating and uh, will be useful over the next few months. Definitely. Um, well, speaking of joining people live, um, very shortly, we're going to be going to Saf Malik, who is live at Data Cloud UK and Ireland today. Um, but before that, uh, we're going to stay with you, Alan, because this week you have covered the news that Microsoft's Operator Connect has won some new contracts. Um, but this signals something new for the industry. Um, now, you did put a couple of questions on this to Jerry when we spoke to him a couple of days ago. Um, so we're going to come back to this later in the episode. But before we do, um, cover what's going on. Tell us what's been happening and why this is important. Yeah, this is this. This is almost something that Microsoft has, I think, been sitting on and nurturing for 10 years since it bought Skype, which was 2011, which is such a long time. I hadn't realized it was such a long time ago. Uh, But they've been getting into telephony, voice over IP and all that sort of thing. And they've been, you know, we're recording this on Teams, which is using voice over IP. But you've never until the last few months been able to make phone calls to Rob Popper, what used to be called PSTN, Public Switch Telephone Network. But now I can make phone calls on this headset that I'm using today to make phone calls around the world. And it is via, I find now, Operator Connect, which is part of a service that's offered via Teams. Um, uh, beginning of the week, Colt and Liquid Intelligent Technologies, we better know as Liquid Telecom, uh, said that they were offering services via Operator Connect. And then AT&T and NTT, which is the biggest and the fifth biggest operator in the world by revenue, uh, said that they're part of it as well. And I think there's going to be a whole, lots of other companies have been involved in the trials, uh, BT, Deutsche Telekom, Orange, Rogers, Swisscom, Tata, Telenor, Verizon, and lots of others as well. Uh, And it's, I'm not sure what it's going to do to the wholesale voice telecoms market there's been a shrinking share of the whole market obviously because but I think it's going to mean that Verizon that sorry that Microsoft is a real power in the wholesale voice market because they are the router the provider the facilitator via their Microsoft Azure data centers around the world it's just moving the whole voice market onto the cloud within a short period of time you know if you get Colt, AT&T, NTT, Liquid, and no doubt a whole host of others over the next few weeks, all going on to Operator Connect. It basically means Microsoft runs the wholesale voice telecoms market globally, um, which gives them a lot of market power. And I wonder what's that going to do to the rest of the industry? Well, I guess it depends on whether or not they're going to get stopped in those tracks with an anti-competitive move from some authority somewhere in the world um but yeah you're right and i think also you know what what prices are they charging and who sets the prices is it microsoft or is it at&t and uh and and the other operators uh that's something that seems to be still unclear um there's a lot of noise about how great it is yeah we're all working from home we all got our laptops at home and usually they work um i had an issue this morning that mine didn't for some reason for a bit uh but Usually they work and it's really a lot more convenient to have everything going via the laptop. Um, And the laptop just becomes that communication center on your desk, whether it's at home 
or as we'll hear from SAF in a minute, from a, a conference in London, or from wherever you're traveling. Yeah, very much. Um, Natalie Saf, what are your thoughts on this? Because it is a huge development in terms of the wholesale industry. And the only thing I was going to um, add is I think it's really just the testament um, into the the kind of what we've been talking about, which is the prevalent of enterprise services um, and the kind of move from the kind of like wholesale community into that space. I think it would, it's, we're very much in the start of a trend um, and I'd be curious to know kind of what the next um, kind of area um, that the kind of wholesale community is going to move into and whether or not we're going to see uh, kind of e an even greater separation between the kind of, you know, the infrastructure and the wholesale services versus enterprise services and, you know, how that was going to pan out over the next few years. That's really it for me. If I can jump in as well, I think it might be interesting to look at how this leaves the companies and I won't embarrass them by naming them, but that have provided wholesale voice services and messaging services, largely to the mobile industry, to also the fixed industry. And this might seem OK. Yeah, as, as Natalie points out, it is for the enterprise market, but the enterprise market is probably, I don't know, half to two thirds of the voice market around the world. It's if that is going to be dominating, this technology is going to be dominating the enterprise voice market. Uh, how long before all voice calls go via Microsoft or an equivalent? And I suppose also oh, well, as well, if there's going to, oh, sorry. I was just also just sorry, thinking sorry. about it. I wonder if there's going to be any kind of conflict of interest whereby maybe some of the the telcos that are providing these enterprise services also own the infrastructure is there a, a slight kind of maybe monopoly at play here because you know you know historically we've heard so much about you know the likes of you know whatsapp and other kind of ott voice services companies and being at loggerheads with the telecoms community in terms of you know using their infrastructure etc how is that going to play into that relationship if the same people who own it are also offering their own services or have a you know a, a piece of that that service. Yeah, I wonder if it'll drive WhatsApp, for example, to and, and now you can make WhatsApp voice calls and video calls within the WhatsApp uh, community, if you want to use the word, but you haven't been able to do sort of breakout calls to other phone numbers. Um, and that might be an interesting thing that Facebook or somebody. I mean, Google tried it with Google Voice a few years ago, and it's never really been a success. I wonder if, if Facebook, WhatsApp, etc will be will start looking at that sort of thing as well uh, trying to catch up microsoft needs may force them to in future um but you mentioned a couple of minutes ago Alan, about how you think that because possibly you know this could end up being everybody goes and everybody makes a switch but what would that do for emergency calls because right now you can't actually make emergency calls on these services and there is yes. a licensing thing here i believe so well, yes you can because actually strangely and i i checked this week and I logged on to my Skype account, which I've had for since about the first year of Skype. Um, um, but it was really interesting. There's still a message on the screen when you log on saying Skype cannot be used for emergency calls. That's because uh, I think probably Microsoft and I might be slandering them. Microsoft do not uh, haven't been really upgrading it, keeping it up to date. So they don't know where you are. So you could be using a Skype account from London, from Paris, from Sydney, from where Hong Kong or whatever, and the, they don't know where you are. Uh, they don't know what the where if there's an emergency where to connect you. But one of the features of 
this operator connect, if I read the small print and what Microsoft says right, there is, they have put technology in to know where somebody is. And therefore, if you make a, a 911 call, as it would be in North America, or 112 in Europe, or 999 in the UK, or whatever, 000 in Australia, uh, it will connect you to the right emergency service. And that's a huge amount of database building to know a where you are b where you should go to get an emergency service uh, and certainly in the us it's it's done almost county by county city by city so that sounds like a nightmare but um, that would be a very complicated bit of uh, work but certainly they say that what they call e911 services are implemented as part of this interesting well i guess that's the end of wholesale voice then um <laughs> well, <this> yes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But it would be worth, I think, over the next few weeks, talking to uh, the Microsoft people, see what they have to say about how physically this is done, because this looks like quite mind boggling technology, the location based emergency calling and all the other facilities that they have to have to implement to mean that they can be a legal licensed telecom service. And what does it do to the rest of the voice industry. I mean, we now, as uh, Euromoney, which owns capacity, now have, can make phone calls via um, Teams. Now, I don't know whether which operator that then goes by, whether it's Microsoft operating as a carrier or other people operating as a carrier. No idea. I think there's a lot of questions that are begged, but there's a lot of complete restructuring in the industry. It's, um, yeah, it's quite um, staggering. Really. It is indeed, um, but we'll definitely be coming back to it. And like you said, Alan, it'd be great to speak to Microsoft and know more about how the technology works, um, especially as we're all on Teams today. But um, yes. anyway, as mentioned, the interview with Jerry is coming up very soon. Um, but before that, we're going to America Square Conference Centre in London and to Sav, who's at Data Cloud UK and Ireland. Um, so Sav, how's it going there and what's happening? Hi, Melanie. Um, infrastructure leaders from across the data cloud industry have gathered today in order to discuss several key topics and pressing trends from within the telecoms landscape. It's quite fascinating learning more about data centers, um, which is an industry that was admittedly foreign to me uh, prior to me starting at Capacity, um, but definitely want to look forward to learning more about. Um, there's a lot of network going on and a lot of coffee being consumed. Um, I definitely think people are just happy to be back at a live and in-person event after the past 18 months. There are several sessions throughout the day uh, covering various topics um, that are mainly linked to data centers. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure you're happy to be at a trade show um, for the first time in a while as well. So tell us what have the sessions covered. What have you been learning about today? Um, the first session covered um, the evolving UK and Ireland digital infrastructure ecosystem and brought together players from across the UK and Irish ecosystem. Uh, the panel, which unfortunately didn't include Emma Fryer, who missed out because of the illness, uh, discussed the development of data centre hubs outside of London and in new areas of the UK. Um, there was another session that covered the wider ecosystem, including subsea and fibre infrastructure, and a final one covered changing technology and infrastructure and how that will rewrite the data centre landscape in the coming years. Um, there's also going to be a discussion forum later in the day um, discussing sustainability and energy provision in the UK um, and another one detailing why the UK and Ireland are critical interchange spots for global connectivity. 
That's really interesting because the UK often gets overlooked in terms of it being an interconnection point for global connectivity because we hear so much from the US and there's always loads of news out of Europe. And um, so it is great to hear from you that there's so much activity um, here in our home country. Um, so tell us, who have you who have you met with? Who have you been bumping elbows with today? So apart from meeting the wider capacity team, um, there's quite a range of characters here at Data Cloud. I've met people from several sectors, including law, finance and telecoms. Um, I've met John Staheli, um, who's quite an interesting figure. He's from international law firm CMS and predominantly deals with landlords and tenants, but has recently focused more on the data center market, ensuring the legalities of several of them around the UK and Ireland. Um, I've also met a team from Deutsche Bank who explained why data centers are vital for the banking industry particularly as the demand for mobile services increases and compliance standards become more and more strict. Um, so overall, a pretty diverse bunch. Fantastic. Um, and what have people been telling you about the data centre industry in the UK and Ireland? So a theme that keeps coming up is um, sustainability. Uh, as we know, Ireland in particular has been a bit of a hub for data centres in recent times. Um, and this event has taught me that there's a huge amount of thought and effort going into ensuring that data centres are as energy efficient as possible. Um, this is all the more interesting given a report from the Irish Times just a few days ago that claimed data centres in Ireland could use 70% of Ireland's electric electricity by 2030, which is a pretty staggering number. Um, the same report stated that the worldwide situation is only 2% of electricity consumed by data centres. The sustainability seminar is later this afternoon and I'm looking forward to attending it and learning more. Fantastic. Well, we're looking forward to hearing more from you as well um, when we all catch up very soon. Um, but thanks so much for that, Seth. Thank you for the live report. Um, our next London-based event, um, for anybody who doesn't know, is Capacity Europe, and that takes place in just over two weeks' time. Um, so if you are attending, please do come and find us and say hello. Um, and it would be great to catch up with people in person. Um, but next in today's episode, we are talking to Jerry Jarami, who is the VP of Wholesale Solutions at AT&T. Um, Jerry, welcome to the Digital Digest, and thank you so much for joining us this week. Great to be with you. Fantastic. Well, now we're going to talk about a few things today. Um, but first of all, we're going to talk about your appointment, because you were appointed to your current role in March this year. Um, so first of all, congratulations. And you're almost six months in now, so tell us how it's going, um, and also what your focus will be for the last quarter of the calendar year. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Melanie. It's it's going well. We have a great team. Uh, we have uh, developed strong client relationships. As far as the focus, you know, going into the last quarter of the year, we're looking to continue to expand our scope of work with our clients and certainly capitalize on the emerging transformational opportunities that exist in the marketplace. So uh, looking for a strong finish. Well, talking about the marketplace, the last 18 months to two years have been quite transformational um, for the telecoms industry, particularly in, in wholesale. Um, what are the main developments as you see them and how is AT&T pivoting to address these and ultimately catch the market opportunities that are emerging? Right. I mean, certainly there has been some interesting developments and uh, it's created some areas of opportunity. Uh, we are seeing the movement of retail VPN uh, towards SD-WAN and that's gaining momentum. And while this is driving some decline in traditional access lines, like let's say TDM or ethernet, we are seeing significant pickup in the demand for internet access services. So as an example, uh, you think about large enterprise locations or uh, driving more uh, data to the cloud. So we're seeing um, a pickup in what I would consider dedicated internet services. 
And then, of course, you think about remote locations, right? And we're seeing more people working remotely and the need to provide access to those remote locations. So we're seeing a pickup in uh, both fiber broadband and wireless broadband, certainly wireless broadband, seeing that as more of a backup opportunity. All that said, um, what we've seen in wholesale, we continue to be strong in our uh, switched and dedicated Ethernet services, though. But uh, by and large, see an opportunity in dedicated Internet, uh, fiber broadband, wireless broadband. Excellent. Um, well, let's concentrate on fiber for a moment because AT&T has the largest fiber footprint in the US um, and it's not just used for wide internet, it's backhaul and we're seeing an explosion in data center deployments, which obviously need fiber too. Um, so give us an update on how AT&T's deployments are going um, and how that work matches the strategy. Sure. Uh, fiber, as, as you may know, has been a significant area of focus and investment for AT&T. We currently offer broadband internet uh, through our AT&T Fiber to nearly 15 million customer locations across the U.S., we'll say across 90 metro areas across the states. More than 650,000 U.S. buildings are lit with AT&T Fiber. Within those buildings, we're now enabling high-speed fiber connections to more than 2.5 million U.S. business customer locations. Um, and if you count, you know, businesses that let's say are near uh, our fiber uh, network nationwide, you got another nine million business customer locations that are actually within a thousand feet of our fiber. Um, today, through the second quarter, we've reported uh, more than 5.4 million fiber broadband subscribers. So um, quite a bit of activity. Um, what makes I think um, AT and T Business Fiber so unique is our well-known carrier-grade service or otherwise known as uh, enterprise-grade connections that are more critical than ever as you're seeing more data that's moving to the cloud and workforce uh, while assets become increasingly dispersed. Um, to us, uh, enterprise-grade does not only mean network reliability, availability, service level agreements and or service uh, level um, objectives. It also means higher speed and large deployment uh, for service. And as an example, um, our high speed um, service provides symmetric speeds of up to one gig to enterprise end users. And even a year ago, we, uh, we actually uh, were the industry's first in activating a 400 gig optical connection in our production network using our flexible, low-cost, in-house white box hardware. And this, you know, you put you couple this together, this will help fuel our bandwidth growth for both wireline and wireless customers. And we're ready to work with wholesale customers to obviously enable them with these capabilities. Excellent. Um, well, last month, um, your VP and CFO said that the global chip shortage um, could impact fiber rollouts this year. Um, and this will obviously have a knock-on effect as well for smaller ISPs. Um, so how long do you see that global situation lasting? Um, and what's the company's strategy to minimize the disruption on customers? Yeah, definitely is top of mind. Uh, very relevant question. From our perspective, um, we've had a preferred place, we've enjoyed a preferred place in our supply chain, which enabled us to source the fiber optical systems for high-speed internet, really with no delays through, let's say, the second quarter. Since the start of the third quarter, though, we are seeing dislocation 
including the fiber in the fiber supply. And as a result of these dislocations, we had previously provided guidance for 3 million homes past this year. We're probably going to come in a little lower than that target, more in the neighborhood of 2.5 million. Um, as far as fiber is concerned, we've added 1 million fiber subscribers. And overall, you know, we feel we still feel good about the future of our business. Um, and, and certainly we'll continue to leverage our scale and our supply chain relationships. Um, in, in terms of the way we think about it, we deploy fiber um, as our goal to at least 40% penetration of homes passed. And uh, we believe in certain markets, we'll have the opportunity to do better than that. Um, the other thing that's great, when you, you lay fiber in an area, uh, in a, into a community, there's both obviously homes and businesses. And so the opportunity uh, is there to boost our returns on the enterprise side. And that's why it's so critical that we roll out because the ability to grow our enterprise and our consumer business is so attractive. Um, we think these investments will continue to provide good returns. In fact, we uh, we believe we'll see mid-teen returns over time. Mid-teen would be very strong returns. Um, good luck on that. Do you keep us updated on how it's going? Um, I know the team also have some questions now. Um, so, Alan, I'm handing over to you first. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, it's it's not just about fiber. You've talked about fiber, but uh, 2021 is also the year of the low Earth orbit communication satellite. Uh, you did a deal with OneWeb recently. It's a new wholesale model, uh, largely aimed at rural communities in the United States. Uh, but globally, you're one of the first to sign up. How will these fiber-like services roll out? Um, for AT&T and what sort of quality of connection do you expect? Uh, how how fiber-like are we talking? Right, Alan. Uh, uh, we're really excited about the opportunity to augment our reach uh, through OneWeb. And while uh, at this point we're at the beginning stages of our relationship, we are certainly excited uh, about the enhanced capabilities that OneWeb will have starting uh, as we start to work with them. Uh, while at this point in time, we're not disclosing the terms of our agreement, we do expect to uh, resale agreement with OneWeb in the coming weeks. And so uh, certainly we'll, you'll see that announcement. Um, we expect that by the uh, early part of uh, 2022, we'll be able to deliver services uh, in the, within the state of Alaska. And then as far as the continental U.S., uh, we're targeting the end of 22 or early 23. Um, we see business customers can come to AT&T services today, which are provided via a variety, as you know, of technologies. AT&T is, is working to collaborate with OneWeb to make this connectivity available in, in remote areas, as you suggested. Uh, there will be no product per se, right, that you would buy from AT&T or OneWeb. Uh, rather, AT&T would use the satellite service as an alternative where the footprint doesn't reach and or where uh, low Earth orbit satellites provide services and costs that are better than other alternatives. Um, this you know, means you'll be potentially competing with local operators to start with in Alaska because uh, current OneWeb plans, I mean, their launches program has been going amazingly. They haven't lost, touch wood, a single satellite so far, and they've got about halfway there in their target for 648 satellites. Um, 
they're doing amazingly well uh, by, as you say, by through 2022, they'll be extending coverage from the initial market area, which is 50 degrees, the 50th parallel northwards to the North Pole into the Arctic. And that's why Alaska is, is great for that. But, you know, as you as they improve the coverage, move south through the rest of the world, you theoretically be able to offer services everywhere. Uh, sure. I mean, you know, looking ahead, great point, uh, great segue. You know, we look at our enterprise, small, medium-sized businesses and government customers, as, as suggested in remote areas uh, that are um, out of reach of, let's say, existing fiber and microwave technology. We're going to target, you know, those type of clients. And AT&T will use this as another tool to provide customers with high-speed connectivity wherever they are. Um, there clearly are communities and towns across our country that have urban sprawl or challenging terrains where there has not been, you know, a case, let's say a, a good business case for fiber. In these instances, uh, networks like OneWeb can reach into distant areas or communities because of their network use satellites and conserve those areas. Um, however, OneWeb's network can only offer redundancy and resiliency and thus serve as backup fiber in case of outages and disaster response efforts. Uh, lower, lower Earth orbit, uh, would, we would consider also a, a complementary to 5G, including supporting backhaul for 5G cell sites. So OneWeb will provide fiber-like low latency, high-speed connectivity, uh, enabling quick extension of 5G networks to unserved and underserved remote areas as well as fast and easy deployment of mobile cells for disaster recovery and emergency response. So definitely um, excited about the opportunities ahead of us. That's interesting because I know, having spoken to Sunil Bharti Mittal, uh, who is the executive chairman of OneWeb a few times, he's very much looking at, at backhaul of uh, mobile masts, mobile service masts, uh, as a, a big market for OneWeb, um, particularly for air, his Airtel operation in Africa and India. So interesting you're doing the same. Yeah, Jerry, can I throw in another one? This is uh, this uh, is something that's only become absolutely uh, topical today as we're recording this. And it's quite appropriate we're recording it via Microsoft Teams because Microsoft is starting to roll out its Operator Connect service which is a, a cloud way of connecting uh, enterprise operators around the world. As you know, we're all using Teams ever since the last 18 months. Uh, Microsoft have added this cloud telephone service onto there um, where you can dial numbers around the world. Are you going to be offering that to your enterprise clients as well? And what's it going to do to the conventional, what we used to call the plain old telephone service, which obviously has moved on a lot in the last few years. Uh, but it looks to me that this is going to be a completely, completely revolutionize what we think of as enterprise telecoms. Yeah, I mean, certainly we've got a close relationship with Microsoft and we'll look to uh, leverage that relationship as far as con connectivity is concerned. You, you agreed to sell your network cloud to Microsoft a few months ago. So, yeah, sure. Very close. Right. right. <laughs> agreed. OK. So do, do you expect to be offering Operator Connect within, to AT&T Enterprise customers? Well, I, I think um, we, we, are, we are looking to head in that direction and we're considering, you know, that approach. Um, uh, 
uh, and again, especially if it if it helps with our reach um, and uh, from an efficiency and a cost standpoint, something we'll certainly take a look at. I'll jump in if that's all right. Um, so, Jerry, just from my perspective, one thing I, I wanted to ask about was, um, you know, Open RAN. It's something that we're certainly covering a lot here over at Capacity and I think is um, uh, very much a, a kind of a hot topic. But um, over at AT&T, I was just curious to know um, whether or not you are considering an Open RAN approach to any of your network builds, particularly um, in rural areas, which we know is very popular at the moment. Right. Uh, thanks, Natalie. Certainly, um, as we... Uh, initially look at open radio access network. Uh, we plan to start our open RAN deployment. If you look at indoor networks, because typically that's relatively easy to install and operate. And then we would look to, uh, our next step would be to look at outdoor deployments, as you mentioned, in rural areas. Um, because again, this is something that we believe we can uh, execute upon rather quickly. Uh, we will use RAN in dense urban network deployments, which are often, as you would appreciate, more complicated in terms of the spectrum antenna technologies involved. So we have to blend this and introduce uh, open radio access network in incremental modules in this case. It's a graduated approach to installing uh, open RAN equipment into an existing network. Uh, so we're looking uh, to sort of achieve that right blend as it slowly shifts from traditional RAN designs to more of an open RAN technology. Uh, AT&T's move to open RAN is largely driven um, by our operators' desire to integrate new suppliers into their network. Uh, the RAN intelligent controller functions inside a wireless uh, network as an element of AT&T will open up to third-party vendors, which obviously gives us options. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just as an observation, probably very much aligns with the work AT&T is doing with the likes of MEF and other kind of standardization kind of groups and, and bodies, because that's certainly uh, something that I suppose really needs to be in place before you can really execute on a, on a kind of open RAN project like that. Absolutely. Yeah, perfect. Saf, anything from you? Um, yeah, so with so many emerging and maturing technologies in the space, um, how is AT&T innovating, uh, especially with the likes of AI, 5G and 6G and the newest kid on the block, quantum computing, um, if at all? Uh, certainly an exciting uh, space for us. Uh, recently, we were recognized as America's most reliable and best 5G network. That was from uh, Global Wireless Solutions, which provides wireless network benchmarking, analysis, and testing. So uh, I'll reference them as GWS. Uh, you know, according to uh, you know the latest 5G findings from uh, GWS, we were awarded the top spot in key categories, including network reliability and availability. And uh, you know, we stand by that our customers have the nation's best 5G experience, network experience. Another um, global wireless solutions test uh, came out that uh, indicated that found our customers that access our 5G network the most. 61% uh, are harnessing the power of our fast, reliable, and highly secure nationwide network. And actually 73% of those customers said they were able to access that, that network where they live. So uh, those were impressive numbers. Uh, that uh, Global Wireless Solutions shared. We continue to lead the charge to unlock 
the power of 5G for consumers and businesses, including bringing the new ultra-fast 5G plus experiences to universities, military bases, hospitals, stadiums, factories, and more. Just a couple of examples that uh, of 5G uh, successes we've had from a university standpoint, the University of Connecticut, Texas A&M. We also had successes with Samsung Austin Semiconductor, the Department of Defense, and uh, JBG Smith Properties in the DC area. So uh, we're seeing a combination of lower latency, massive connectivity, and faster speeds that'll eventually create opportunities for us to transform retail, uh, help make autonomous vehicles a reality, uh, make it possible to build smart factories and certainly working towards revolutionizing healthcare. Um, you mentioned AI, edge infrastructure, further reductions in latency are critical areas of focus for next generation of uh, mobile technology. And it's truly going beyond the capabilities currently offered by 5G. So we look ahead to 6G networks, which are gonna require 100 times the data throughput of 5G and edge cloud deployments and we'll need to expand to cover hundreds of thousands, if not millions of access points. Uh, such a shift is necessary to enable sub-millisecond latency and future use cases allowing compute, storage, and AI capabilities to keep up with user requirements. Um, as we look at uh, innovation, much like when 4G was introduced to the world, um, you know, it was sort of references the gig economy, we believe mobile 5G will jumpstart the next wave of un unforeseen innovation. Uh, we're cultivating our ecosystem today, uh, so we could. Uh, so this will allow us the time to move. Obviously, migrating from that 4G environment to a 5G world at scale. Um, in fact, down in Plano, Texas, we opened up this past April our AT&T 5G Innovation Studio, which brings together AT&T business, consumer and NEO organizations to accelerate the path uh, to market for new product offerings and, and our key strategic initiatives. Uh, the space is equipped with um, millimeter wave sub six and LTE networks, and soon we'll add a standalone 5G core, which is the next generation of 5G technology, and will enable us to set up use cases uh, thanks to uh, network slicing. Um, this is an environment uh, that we believe that we can work with customers and industry collaborators to develop, co-develop uh, 5G proof of concept opportunities and demonstrate our value uh, in our existing solutions. Fascinating, Joe. That sounds so exciting. Do you keep us up to date on that? Um, I did not think that we'd be getting a look ahead to 6G today when we um, when we organize this interview. Yeah, that's uh, good things to come. <laughs> Indeed, there are. Um, Jerry, it's been great to speak with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, now, there's obviously going to be much more from AT&T over the next couple of weeks. You also have your next financial results coming up as well. So do keep in touch. Let us know how it all goes. And we look forward to catching up with you again in the not too distant future. Absolutely. Uh, really appreciated the opportunity to spend some time with you today. Thank you. 
Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to the team for bringing us late on all those stories and for traveling to conference centers and cable landings. Thanks to everybody who listened and a huge thanks to Jerry also for sharing that insight. We will be back next week with more stories from the global tech and telecom space, as well as another special guest. But until then, you can catch up with all the latest over at capacitymedia.com. Don't forget to sign up to our daily and weekly newsletters. Check out the latest edition of Capacity Magazine and also register for our upcoming events. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great week, take care and catch you next time.